Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've got Alex and Zach on with you today because our guest is that person in the schedule where we just go, nobody else is having this, that's us. Everybody else can naff off. Who have we got, Alex? Yeah, we absolutely do do that. I think I've had a couple of prods like, oh, next time he's on. No, no. (laughs) Right. In 1638, the ruler of Japan ordered a crusade against his own subjects. Hmm. A holocaust upon the men, women and children of a doomsday cult. The sect was said to harbour dark designs to overthrow the government. Its teachers read and wrote a dead language that was impenetrable to all but the innermost circle of believers. Its priests preached love and kindness, but helped local warlords acquire, acquire firearms. They encouraged believers to cast aside their earthly allegiances and swear loyalty to a foreign god emperor before seeking paradise in terrible martyrdoms. This is sounding familiar, Zach. The cult <laughs> was in open revolt, led, it was said, by a boy sorcerer. Farmers claiming to have the blessing of an alien god had bested trained samurai in combat and proclaimed that fires in the sky would soon bring about the end of the world. The shogun called old soldiers out of retirement for one last battle before peace could be declared in Japan. For there to be an end to the war, he said, the Christians would have to die. Because yes, I'm talking about Christianity because we don't don't care about pissing people off on history. That cannot possibly be true. But it is. That's the cover blurb for the book Christ Samurai, the true story of the Shimabara Rebellion by Jonathan Clements. Returning to History Hack once again after episodes on Chinese food, the pirate king of Taiwan, Confucius and Kublai Khan. He is the author of many books on the Far East, History Hack's dedicated Far East correspondent and the presenter of three seasons of Root Awakening for National Geographic. But surely this time you're just making shit up, John. You've got me. You've got me. This is all completely untrue. No, this is all true, I'm afraid. Uh, I um, I was working on my book about the Pirate King of Taiwan, actually, and this started off as a footnote in that because there's a very unreliable history of the Manchu invasion of China by a, a guy called the Reverend Palafox. And just in this aside, he goes, oh, yeah, and the Pirate King of Taiwan, he had a sister, and she was one of the Christian rebels with her Portuguese husband in Japan, and they had to be evacuated by the pirates, and they went to China. And, the, and I was like, hang on, what Christian rebels? And that's <laughs> when it all started. Um, because the story of the Shimabara Rebellion is incredibly well-known among Japanologists, actually. I was a bit of a dick for not spotting it um, (laughs) um, myself uh, before. But you've done Um, what we all do at publishing, which is going and go, I've got something new and brilliant to tell you. Well, actually, this was a story that was incredibly overtold in the 19th century, and we'll get to that later on. And so what you have is this really odd uh, bias issue within publishing uh, and within ac- academia as well, which is that we have several generations where people go, not touching Shimabara, not worth it, been done. And so for about 50 or 60 years, no one talked about it at all because it was one of the first things that people kind of dashed in to write about. 
Um, and so it's only really now that we're seeing more people writing about it again, uh, because you know, in that time, the, the the works that have been written about it have kind of gone out of date or gone out of copyright, so no one can profit from them anymore, or have you know various other things have happened to them. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a thing where, you know, I went to the publisher and pitched it and they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. No one's ever talked about this before. And I was like, going, well, actually, about 50 people have talked about it before, but they're all dead. Yep. Excellent. So rewind a bit for us. How does Japan end up with any Christians to start with? Because I thought that this kind of wasn't their thing. It's not their thing, and it still isn't their thing. I mean, in fact, uh, it is a truism that there are more Christians today in Iraq than there are in Japan, and that should give you an idea of just what a small percentage of the population it is and indeed was. But Japan did go through um, a period uh, which has been called the Christian century uh, by historians. Um, and it's uh, the, the trouble with the term Christian century is that was the name of, uh, of Charles Boxer's book about it in the 1950s. And it was titled by his publishers above his, um, above his uh, opposition. He actually hated the idea of a Christian century because he thought it was prescriptive and limiting and he didn't like it. But well, that's what we're stuck with now. Uh, so for about 100 years, uh, from the time of the first Christian missionaries to arrive in Japan to the time when everyone was executed, um, you have this period. So it basically begins about 1543, because that's when the Portuguese show up in the very, very south of Japan on an island called Tanagashima. Um, and so that's their first encounter with some of the samurai domains in this very, very southern part of Japan, um, which is far away from the center of things. Uh, it's where all the smuggling goes on. It has this sort of liminal contact with, with China as well. So they're, they're hearing our stories about these missionaries in China already. Um, but the crucial thing with the Portuguese and eventually the Spanish is that when they show up in Japan, they aren't just telling stories about this lovely religion, which can make everybody friends. They're also selling guns. Um, in fact, the word for a matchlock musket in Japan was Tanagashima, uh, because that was the island they were first discovered on uh, when the Portuguese started flogging them. And so what you get in the later part of the 16th century is uh, this sudden fad, this sudden trend uh, for Christianity in Japan. And, and some of it is entirely cosmetic. You've got samurai walking around with crucifixes on like their Madonna. Um, because, you know, crucifixes are in. Um, and some of it is incredibly pragmatic and gimlet-eyed. Um, you have lords, particularly down in the south, uh, uh, so around Nagasaki, uh, Amakusa, Omura, um, converting to Christianity, taking Christian names, and uh, telling the people of their domains that they are now all Christians. So you've got these mass conversions, thousands and thousands of people, all saying overnight, oh, yeah, I'm Christian now. Um, uh, and uh, these lords become major power players in uh, the, the, the ongoing samurai wars in Japan because suddenly they've got this magic technology. They have artillery, they have gunpowder, they have uh, arquebuses and, and, and uh, matchlock weapons. Um, and so uh, the, the Christians, the Christian missionaries, particularly the Jesuits, because they're always interfering, the Jesuits, <laughs> uh, um, the, the Jesuits realize uh, something which the Franciscans don't quite work out themselves, that the, that the only way to deal with the Japanese is to convert the top. You can't walk around being nice to poor people in Japan. That's not how things work. You've got to go to the Duke and the, and the Duchess. And if you get them to switch, they'll bring all their followers with them. Um, and so the Jesuits are in very much at the top, you know, uh, sneaking around uh, between these various lords who've all got these fantastic Christian names like Protasio and Andre and, and, and Bartholomew. Um, and they all get involved uh, in, in the various samurai wars. And, and that goes on right up until the... The great battle in 1600, Sekigahara, which unifies Japan finally under, the, under a shogun, um, at which point people start to try and dismantle this suspicious foreign influence because suddenly having these guys showing up selling you guns, uh, telling how artillery works, is not some handy little um, bit of technology or, 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 or some upper hand in the civil war. Suddenly, this is dangerous, particularly when Christianity has a, an avowed allegiance to a foreign entity because these are all Catholics. So they're all talking about how great the Pope is. 
and how the Pope can organize crusades and the Pope can do this and the Pope can do that. And the Shogun and ultimately the Emperor demand the ultimate loyalty from their people. And the idea that there's some other guy you know, on, on the other side of the planet who can tell them what to do is uh, very unsettling for them. How serious are these Japanese um, Christian converts? Um, well, as I said, many of them seem quite frivolous at the time. Yeah. And, and, and there's, a, there's a concept in, in, um, in Far Eastern missionary uh, accounts called rice Christians, which is people who convert because they get free food. Um, okay. so there's a, and, and, and there are some very suspicious stories about that kind of thing going on. Was it just me or did anybody else just go Rice Krispies? Yeah. <laughs> it was just you, Zach. Um, so, um, and, and some of them, and there's some very suspicious behaviours as well. In, in 1580, the Jesuits write this very sheepish letter back to the Pope saying, uh, we've accidentally become the lords of Nagasaki. Sorry. And the Pope's like, what the fuck is, does that mean? And, and uh, this takes a while for us to go back and backwards and forwards. So, uh, so it, it, it takes until about 1582 for them to go, yeah, so Bartholomew, Lord Bartholomew has given us Nagasaki to help us kind of, uh, you know, make some money. And the Pope's like, what do you mean make money? Because, well, we've got to bring in all the silk and the guns and stuff, and we have to make tax on that because we have hundreds of thousands of converts that we have to administer to. And we had to set up the printing press, you know, to make all the Bibles and stuff. And, you know, one thing led to another, and uh, he gave us a town. I hope you don't mind. And the Pope is absolutely infused. He's like, you're not supposed to be running a merchant empire from the middle of sodding Japan. <laughs> I, 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 I may be paraphrasing here, but you get the idea. However, the thing is that the really, the really shocking thing for me still now, and also for many modern Japanese people, is some of them took it incredibly seriously. Some of them became incredibly and demonstrably devout. They started up huge charitable enterprises. They gave up fighting um, in, a, in, a, uh, in a validly Christian way. Um, they, um, and when the persecution started, they didn't do the easy way out they didn't take the easy way out and go okay i'm buddhist again fine whatever they went to their deaths in a number of spectacular martyrdoms and being japanese uh, they often volunteered for it as well that's the, that's the amazing thing is that you have these stories of, of the kind of government inspectors breaking into a house and dragging people out going you're a christian we, we know you're a christian we're going to take you away and torture you and then we're going to execute you and then their kids come running out of the house going we're christians too take us um, knowing full well that they're going to be executed, uh, often by crucifixion, in fact. Um, so uh, the degree, the seriousness of Japanese uh, belief is something that uh, is of great interest to a lot of modern scholars. Obviously, a lot of the people who write about this period are themselves Christians, and so they, they're fascinated by this. And there's a novelist called Endor Shusaku, who um, you will probably know as the author of the original novel on which the film Silence was based. Um, and he uh, became a Japanese Christian uh, by default, really. His mother converted to Catholicism, and so he was baptized, uh, I think, when he was about 10 or 11. Um, and he spent much of his authorial career asking himself who these people were, because he said, I don't feel this. If you said to me, say you're not a Christian or we'll kill you, I'd just say I'm not a Christian. I'm not that bothered. But these people, for them, it was a matter of life or death. And they were very prepared to accept death. And, and so that's what Silence is about, and many of his other stories as well, is him trying to get to grips with what these people must have felt about, about their, their religious beliefs in order to be prepared to die for them. So you've got all of these people who are kind of becoming really quite devout. What ends up turning the tide against the Christians? Um, well, it, the, the, the real issue, well, there, there are several issues, actually. Uh, firstly, as the wars progressed in Japan, as Japan was eventually unified under a single ruler, um, uh, the, 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 the final battle was a kind of stutter in history. It was, oh, it's 1580, no, it's 1590, okay, it's 1600, now it's final. So there, there, there was this little bit of shuffling about at the top and for, the, for the final samurai wars. And it's very clear that you get some samurai who are Christians on one side and some samurai who are not Christians on the other. And that becomes an increasingly sensitive issue, particularly uh, with the whole popery that I mentioned. So uh, you see several attempts to kind of downplay the importance of Christianity uh, towards the close of the 16th century. In particular, there was a Japanese invasion of Korea 
um, by Hideyoshi, um, which quite conspicuously put all the Christians in the front line. They kind of rounded up. Uh, J- Japan was supposedly unified, and we've got all these samurai with nothing to do. Let's invade Korea. So they they mounted this massive decade-long campaign against Korea, which was basically a crusade. It was basically the Christian samurai being told, if you can win land for yourself in Korea, fine, you go off and do that. And it was designed to keep the samurai busy, but one I've always suspected it was also designed to kind of kill off as many of the Christians as possible. Um, some of them were getting older. They retired. They became what's known as kinobushi, which is uh, soldiers that return to the land uh, uh, in Japanese. Um, and then uh, in uh, 1600, there was a huge battle at Shimabara, which is the uh, sorry. Uh, in 1600, there was a huge battle at um, Sekigahara, which was the, the 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 battle that united the country. And basically, whatever side you fought on in in 1600 determined your house's position for the next 250 years. And a lot of the Christians were on the losing side. Um, And a lot of the southern domains, in fact, were on the losing side. And that didn't do them any good. And some of them lost their domains or they were shuffled out or they were told you should maybe, you know, recant your Christianity. Otherwise, um, we may have to, um, you know, do something horrible to you. The real issue, however, the real central issue was a relatively minor event that happened in 1596 uh, in an obscure place um, off the coast of Japan. Uh, And that was a a shipwreck. The San Felipe was a a merchant ship which kind of smashed into some rocks and it was carrying silk. And it must have been an amazing sight because all these different colored silks were billowing out of the hole in the ship and spreading out over the sea. And the locals... Uh, knowing a good thing when they saw it, kind of ran out in boats and started collecting it up. And after a while, the captain realized they were nicking it. Um, And so in the fight that ensued between him and the local um, overseer, he made a series of very blunt threats about Christians. He said, you don't understand. You know, it's not just about the missionaries. The missionaries just come first, then it's the soldiers. And if you fuck with us, we are going to take stuff over because that's what we've done in every other country. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. And then suddenly you get the, um, the various rulers of Japan, because there's a kind of revolving door at the top at this point, saying, you know, this guy is right. You know, we've, we've seen what's happening in other parts of the world. Maybe we should start clamping down on this. And so after 1600, so this is four years after the San Felipe incident, is the Battle of Sekigahara. But after 1600, you get a generation where Christianity is increasingly clamped down upon. Uh, you, you get more persecutions. You get you know, suggestions that maybe people don't want to do it, and then you get more persecutions, and then there are executions. And, and so you've got the shogun um, essentially saying, okay, there shouldn't be any more uh, fighting now. Japan is safe. We've, we've sorted out all the whole war and stuff. So now we are going to turn into a police state for the next 250 years. You're going to have rigid provincial um, guy, uh, uh, boundaries, and uh, so the, the, the shogun's uh, assertion of control was becoming increasingly powerful and increasingly more shrill, frankly, as, as the, uh, the 1600s progressed. And so one of the real threats to him was the possibility that a boatload of missionaries could turn up at the wrong time and supply artillery to some lord who was feeling uh, aggrieved. And so uh, that's really what turned uh, the tide against the Christians um, uh, from 1600 onwards uh, and, and led to the kind of persecutions that I was talking about. So I'm guessing this is wrapped up then in <clears throat> does, what does the Shogun mean when he says there will be no more wars? And does this, I mean, does the cause of this, that the Christians just fade away? Right. Well, um, yes. In, in fact, one, one of the things that, uh, that happened in this period is that some Lords were dethroned as it were, or, or, or shuffled around um, and down in the south, because that was the heartland of Christian belief, there were some particularly strict lords put in charge, like the Matsukura family. Um, and uh, the Matsukura family had to take part in uh, the demilitarization of many parts of Japan. Basically, one of the things the shogun said was, is there's going to be one castle per territory. I don't want six castles in someone's domain. We don't need that anymore. We need one central castle as the ruling center for my um, for my representative, and I want you to dismantle all the other castles. And the Matsukura family 
uh, started building a mega castle. They started building Shimabara Castle, which was this immense tower um, uh, in Shimabara, um, designed specifically to watch the coastlines. Because I've been to the top of Shimabara Castle, and and you can look out and see the whole of the Ariaki Sea. So it's great for you know for looking for smugglers and so on. Um, and but this was a ridiculously opulent castle. It's, a, it's massive, even by Japanese standards. Leading the shogun to send a message, uh, which Alex has just quoted, there will be no more wars. He's saying, you know, this is a very war-y kind of castle yeah. you're making here. Um, and, you know, also, as well, how do you, how do you inflict that? Possibly by declaring war on someone and physically violently. Yeah, you could you could bring an end to them being no more wars by starting a war, which I think is what the shogun was getting at. Um, and, and the other thing is, of course, is that the Matsukura family were having to fund this from somewhere, and there are all kinds of suspicions that they were already involved in smuggling. Um, but actually, they're also really heavily taxing the local peasants. Uh, the local peasants who were Kinobushi, who were former Christian samurai or Christian samurai who had gone back to the land. And so they were being treated like they were just a bunch of farmers that the Matsukura family thought they could slap around. Uh, and that's what led to the flashpoint that started the Shimabara revolution, uh, the Shimabara rebellion, because the Matsukura's people were getting so persnickety about tax. There's one, there's one famous incident where he turned up, where one of their inspectors turned up and hacked a melon in half to get the last bit of tax required uh, <laughs> uh, from from the people he was beating. And, and of course, uh, and they were, if people refused to pay their tax, they they were they were torturing them, and they were they're saying, well, actually, you're probably Christian, so we're going to you know uh, torture you now. There's a really horrible thing they did called the Minor Dance, which is where they put them in a in a raincoat, which in Japan is made of sedge. It's like a it make you look like a haystack. And then they cover it in oil and set fire to you and sit there laughing while you rolled around, uh, screaming. Uh, and, and so this is the kind of people that the Matsukura uh, family were. And uh, so even the Shogun was faintly suspicious about their activities. Um, and, and so it's this very political thing where if the Matsukuras fuck it up, they will be relieved of their command. They'll be packed off to somewhere else and someone else will be put in charge. So, so the Matsukuras are under very heavy pressure to hunt down the Christians to, to make sure there are no smugglers or missionaries around, to build a nice castle, but not one that's too castly, um, and basically to, uh, to keep order in their province. And the, the, the threat of being relieved of their command is a big deal for them, because basically they're the 1% at the moment, and they will be taken off the 1% list uh, if, uh, if they turn out not to be good at their jobs. So there's a rebellion. Is this because Matsukura's um, and, and the family's kind of oppression is worse than other parts of what's happening in other parts of Japan? And also, when it comes to the rebels, they're talking some pretty um, zany stuff, shall we say? So things like the prophecy, you know, after five by five years have passed, see his sign in the sky in east and west, the clouds will burn dead trees shall put forth flowers to usher in the return of Christ. Are people taking this seriously? Well, uh, to deal with the first part first, was the oppression more serious than in other parts of Japan? Uh, the, the, the clampdowns, <clears throat> excuse me, the clampdowns on the Japanese were severe all over the country. They were deliberately trying to overwrite the last 200 years and make it impossible for there to be any more um, opposition to the shogun. So there was certainly a very severe degree of oppression going on elsewhere in the country, as there had been for decades. I mean, very similar prescriptions were pushed against uh, a bunch of, uh, kind of anarchist Buddhists by uh, Oda Nobunaga um, a couple of decades uh, beforehand. So uh, they were being treated quite badly all over Japan. I think the Matsukuras, for reasons I've just outlined, were particularly zealous um, because they were under pressure from both sides. They had this financial issue. They had the, the, the whole possibility of a fifth column of Christians anywhere in their domain um, because they were closest to the trade routes. And so therefore they were under particular pressure there. So maybe they were a little bit more zealous in their persecution of the locals. Um, and there also may be a, uh, uh, a historical uh, materialist issue here, which is that we know more about what was done to the Christians because 
Christian historians are more interested in that. So we have Crasset's History of Christianity in Japan, for example, which was written 300 years ago, but which details the kind of oppression of, um, of the Christians in, in that particular region. So, so there may be a research bias there as well, but, but quite a lot of, of, of pushiness. The interesting issue, however, is how Christian the rebels were, because it's very clear that the initial impetus that started the rebellion off was taxation, was very poor farmers who happened to be Christian fighting back against the people who were stealing the last of their crops um, to fund a castle that no one wanted to be involved with. Um, and so there's often suspicions among historians that Christianity was a very convenient smokescreen for the shogun to use to say, well, we've got to wipe all these people out. Uh, and we're going to wipe them out because they're fighting our tax laws, not because they happen to be Christians. So it may have been a really handy excuse, but it also may have been a handy excuse among the rebels. Um, we have this sense that there's a, a committee of old samurai who are kind of running the rebellion. And it seems that they, they seeded the local area with anti-Christian uh, comments by, by the people they were fighting in order to inspire other people to get involved. So you do get this sense with the rebellion that some of them were, rebe were rebels and some of them were Christian rebels, and that's not necessarily the same thing. Um, so as a case in point, you mentioned the prophecy, um, and uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is crazy. Um, and uh, it... Uh, so and I think it's a fake. I think this prophecy. The, the idea was was that in 1614, one of the last Jesuits to leave um, the area uh, under the, the shogunal persecutions left this prophecy behind. That after five by five years, a great <laughs> youth will arise, and he will, um, you know, he'll do this and he'll do that. And 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 as you say. Uh, He, you'll see his sign in the sky in East. Is this like, is this an element of the? I go fuck them right up mm. on my way out the door. Well, no, because I don't think that Jesuit existed. I think that okay. this pro, I think this prophecy was made up by the organisers of the rebellion and backdated to 1614. Because okay. although the prophecy's existence is bollocks, the things it predicts were all happening. Okay. So, for example, um, when you say we see his sign in the sky. The marshes around Shimabara uh, put out huge tons of methane, which would kind of create some Elmo's fire effects in the sky. Um, and the, the new samurai who'd arrived didn't know that this was some kind of marsh gas thing. And they thought that they were kind of glowing lights in the sky. And so they were, they were deliberately kind of you know, saying, oh, well, that's because of the end times. You know, not it's because of the marsh, it's because of the end times. Unfortunately, land reclamation in the last 60 or 70 years in that part of Japan has completely removed all the marshes, so we can't see this kind of will-o'-the-wisp um, effect anymore. In east and west, the clouds will burn. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think, in when we were talking about Kublai Khan, uh, that uh, there are these massive climate change issues um, during... Um, The, uh, the late Middle Ages, ages and, the, and the early pre-modern period. Um, and uh, one of these was spectacular sunsets. I mean, we, we were in the middle at this point of one of the nine sloughs, which are these terrible fluctuations in climate, which created the same conditions in Manchuria that caused the invasion of China in 1644, just a few years later, because, you know, we, we're dealing with crop failure and we're dealing with... Um, Uh, uh, famine and disease and floods, all the kind of things that would make the locals, A, run out of money really fast because their crops are failing, and, and B, be more resistant to government oppression because everyone's suffering the same kind of problems. So we have these spectacular sunsets in the east and the west, the, cl the clouds will burn. And also trees were flowering out of season because sometimes the fluctuation in climate meant that it was actually warmer than it should have been. And so trees that were supposed to be dead in winter were still putting out flowers. Um, and so all of these things are, I think, observations from 1637, 1638 that have been retconned into a made-up prophecy to try and whip the rebels up into some kind of uh, uh, fervor. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. 
We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So, this child Messiah, was he a real person? Yeah, that's the amazing thing. Um, There's a guy called Amakusashiro uh, who used the Christian name Jerome. um, And he was the son of a preacher called Peter uh, of uh, Amakusa. Uh, And so they were... Uh, instrumental in in the rebellion and um, Jerome was kind of set up as the kind of figurehead of the rebellion and we have multiple conflicting reports about him we know that he came from a family of minor samurai Uh, we believe that he was uh, an assistant to a samurai lord for some like a page boy for some time Um, but that he and his father were kind of itinerant preachers and the nature of preaching in that time was very performative there's a lot of kind of conjuring and illusions and you know we'll we'll tell you a bible story but we'll also make this dove disappear that kind of thing um and so he had a certain showman-like quality about him even as a teenager he was also supposedly incredibly beautiful or according to the other stories completely disfigured by some kind of skin disease and there was this kind of story that he'd bathed in the waters of unzen which are these hot volcanic springs uh, in shimabara and he'd been cured and this was you know the doing of jesus and it was part of his his spiel really so um so shiro amakusa um was the leader supposedly of the rebels and we have proclamations written in his name some of them were wrapped around arrows and shot out of the castle when they were besieged so we we have uh proclamations that were written in his name possibly by the the real leaders possibly by him himself if he really was some kind of child prodigy um and we have a description of him coming ashore wearing a crown made of uh ramier uh grass and a and a crucifix painted on his head and this kind of white priest's robes and um all looking very um very messianic uh the degree to which he was the real leader or a figurehead is is impossible to say um but he he certainly seems to have been a, a real person um and he he is the one that has has really attracted popular attention uh, in more recent times, you know, the 20th century stories, the manga, the films, the, uh, the novels about the Shimabara Rebellion often concentrate on this beautiful messianic youth who was supposedly the leader of everything. Um, and, and the the tone of his pronouncements is very interesting because they are they're written in Japanese, but they're peppered with Portuguese accented Latin. Um, so there are lots of terms in the the pronouncements of um, of, uh, of Shiro that are that are, that are very clearly uh, the, the the words of a devout Christian believer uh, who has who, who doesn't have Japanese words to describe some of the things like confession or or um, or penance and is using uh, Portuguese or Latin words uh, to describe them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the samurai obviously need to deal with this, but to what extent is their response kind of hampered by their own rules and regulations? The samurai are often their own worst enemy here. Um, Firstly, because uh, we have this revolt very, very far in the south. And the samurai aren't allowed to leave the boundaries of their provinces. So the initial military response to the revolt um, is a bunch of samurai from the, from the province that is actually in charge. And they turn up and they're defeated 
by the rebels. Um, the reason being that the rebels are not just a bunch of farmers who don't know what they're doing. They are veteran soldiers from the Korean War who are now, <clears throat> um, uh, who've still got their muskets from, from, from back in the day and are really good with it because they've been hunting with them for the last 20 years. And, and so, and so they, they really surprised the, the, the samurai response. And there can't be another samurai response because the shogun's own rules say you can't cross the border. So even though... For example, Kumamoto is literally across the water from, from Shimabara. The samurai of Kumamoto are stuck there with their arms folded, staring out across the Ariaki Sea um, at the fires on the horizon. And they are unable to respond until the shogun sends them an approval. But for that to happen, they have to send messengers all the way up to what is now Tokyo, get the approval, and come all the way back. And those messengers are coming back with messages of approval for all the provinces in between as well. So when the messengers come back to Kumamoto and say, okay, you can advance and put down this rebellion. They advance knowing that 20 other provinces are right behind them, speed marching south as well. Because that's the other issue, is that the samurai are pretty sure this is going to be the last battle that they see in their lifetime. This is your last chance for a battlefield promotion. This is your last chance for a medal. You know, uh, we thought it was all over in 1600, but now we've got one more battle to fight. Many of them are quite young men and they are absolutely clueless about what war is. And they think this is their big chance. They've been training for this for their whole lives and now we can actually do it. So if you were born in the year of Shimabara, you're just kind of reaching the end of your operational uh, prowess in 1638. And you are desperate for someone to see you on the battlefield uh, being heroic. So there is this in, there's this tidal wave rushing south um, to deal with um, the Shimabara rebellion. And they all kind of pile in almost at exactly the same time. And there's this kind of fight among them about who gets to be where. Because the, the rebels have retreated to a place called Hara Castle, which is a very big uh, decommissioned fort um, near Shimabara. And so the, we have like a dozen different houses bringing their own armies and all kind of fighting over who gets to be where during the siege and who gets to do what during the siege. And then you have uh, the shogun's messengers going, is the siege done yet? Because how difficult can it be? And they're like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're trying to sort it out. Um, one of the samurai, very smartly, one of the leaders says, they can't live there forever on the food they've got. We really should just wait. And then no one dies. It's going to be nice and easy. But that kind of rather sensible, pragmatic approach isn't good enough for the younger officers. Like, no, 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 no. I think I saw someone shooting at me over there. I'm going to go off and see if it's an enemy and then immediately try and attack and, 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 start, and start a conflict on the edge. So, so in many ways, yes, the samurai response, uh, they turn into their own worst enemy. There are, in fact, accounts of the siege of Hara Castle of the attackers turning on each other about who has the right to get up the ladder first kind of thing. <laughs> Oh, my God. OK, so you've given us some reasons why the siege lasted so bloody long in the first place. Um, how does their food last for so many months? How how does it last this long? Well, um, the uh, the thing about Hara Castle is is our, our image in our heads of a castle is, oh, well, it's a few towers and there's like a, you know, a shed in the middle or something. It's actually an island. I mean, uh, it had silted up quite a lot by that point. And today it's completely connected um, to the mainland. Um, but 100 years earlier, it was being referred to in Samurai Chronicles as Hara Island. So its defences uh, were in part caused by the fact that it was cut off by tidal waters twice a day. Um, some of the stories about Jerome uh, include him walking on water, but, uh, but actually... You can literally kind of paddle across and it's, it looks like you're walking on water, but actually you're just, it's like, it's like some, if you imagine St. Michael's Mount and being you know, trapped as you try and get away from it, and it looks like you're walking on water when you try and get away. Um, it was also huge. I mean, it, it took me half an hour to walk across it, maybe longer uh, when I was there. Um, the area of the castle now is big enough to have entire farms inside it. So you can grow your own food. Uh, there are wells inside there are uh, and, and part of it faces the sea so you can actually go and kind of harvest up shellfish in the shallows and go fishing and all kinds of stuff um, so it can be remarkably self-sufficient um, for a very long time however as time went by the rebel the thing is, is that the re there were 37,000 rebels 
So it's the actual fighters and their families, and they're all kind of stuck inside this castle, uh, which has multiple... So, if, so you can imagine, there's a small wall around the, the very, very outskirts, but the, the castle part is much more strongly defended, but basically you, you're on this kind of fortified area of farmland. Um, when I went to um, Shimabara uh, doing the research for my book, I stayed at a, an inn um, near the castle and i don't know if you've ever been to a japanese inn but they're they're kind of socially cringeworthy because you you get this maid who kind of comes into your room with all the food and sits there watching you eat it and it's all a bit uh difficult for a british person to cope with so my then wife and i were sort of you know tucking into this meal of a uh, very very japanese meal of um seafood mainly and i was trying to talk to the maid because it felt odd having someone just sitting there looking at you while you ate um, and she said, I know that you are here doing kind of castle-y stuff. So I've actually made sure that we've, we've cooked you something that is from the siege. We've cooked you a local dish called guzoni, um, which is this sort of burner with a sort of broth in it of mushrooms and seaweed and um, a couple of bits of shellfish. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating. I think it may well have been the beginning of my obsession with, with Asian food as a path into history because it was so bland and so mundane and boring but it was and, and she said the thing about this is is this is the food that the, the, the besieged christians ate and so I was, so I was kind of being transported back in time by this um but the thing is is that i know what the sources are for the shimabar rebellion i have an entire concordance of every single thing that's been written about it and we don't have the menu from the rebels uh, <laughs> we have the canteen menu for the samurai besieging them we have the troop movements. We have the, the blacksmith reports. We have incredibly uh, mundane and incredibly interesting and useful data sets from the besiegers, but we have almost nothing from the people in the castle. So I said to them, how do you know what they ate? And she went, oh, I don't. Uh, we, we just do, she said. And she got really nervous. And the reason is, is if you dig around in the research, you find out that the samurai themselves are trying to work out how things were going in the castle. And one of the ways they worked out how to do it was to rip open the bodies of some of the dead rebels that they killed on the wall and look in their stomachs to see what was there. And so the recipe for Kuzoni is actually um, uh, a coroner's report rather than a menu. That's brilliant. So does that look like you're going to be sick? I think this is the most <laughs> awesome thing ever. Go on, Zach, move it on before you yak. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> trying to give me a sec. Um, fucking hell. <laughs> I didn't realise you were that squeamish. Uh, I'm not normally, but I mean, that's that's quite extreme. Hey, why don't we just tear open a human being and then use that as the basis of a new like regional dish? Um, it's it's yeah. brilliant. It's like, how are you still alive? Right, that's it. I'm going to find out. Bring me a dead one. I'm going to find out how they're still alive. It's clever. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. It was the most unlikely historical source I was expecting to have to use. I have to tell you. Yeah. You know, (laughs) one of those things about this. I'm admiring the inventiveness, though. Um, Yeah. But yeah, let's let's move on. Um, The Dutch get involved, don't they? So why do they go to war against fellow Christians on the samurai's behalf? Is that not a bit kind of counterproductive? Slightly, yeah. Um, so the Dutch are still around in Japan. The Dutch are the only um, white people who've actually been allowed to stay. And the reason is they're Protestants. Um, they've made it very clear to the shogun that they don't do this Catholicism stuff um, and that the Catholics are causing all the trouble in Europe, they say. We Protestants, however, we never cause any trouble. You can trust us. You can't see people of the interwebs, but, but Zach is wetting himself laughing <laughs> yeah. with, the, with the mute button on. So, so, uh, and and so the so the samurai have already said to the Dutch, okay, well, you know, prove it to us. This is a picture of the Virgin Mary or or Jesus Christ. Walk across it. Prove us that you're not a Christian. And the Dutch go, well, fucking tap dance on it if you want. We don't care. It's just a picture. (laughs) And so, as a result, the Dutch are trusted. The Dutch are permitted to stay in Hirado, uh, and they're permitted to trade. And the, the Dutch have a little island called Dejima. Um, which is their little ghetto, and they are permitted to trade there and, until 1700. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're there right the way until the end of the Dutch East India Company. Um, and uh, and this, this image of Christ, or image of a saint or a Virgin Mary, 
this is called a fumi e, a trampling image. And that was used as the ultimate test to, de to determine if someone was a Christian uh, for hundreds of years in Japan. So the Dutch are minding their own business and they hear about this rebellion and they're like, well, luckily this has nothing to do with us because it's just a bunch of farmers in Shimabara. And there's a knock on the door and they go, guess what? It's not farmers, it's Catholics. Now's your chance to prove just how opposed to Catholics you are. And the Dutch leader is a guy called Nicholas Kukabaka, who's like, for fuck's sake. Now, what do we do? Now, Kukabaka has already started to suspect that something like this is going to happen. He sent most of the Dutch East India ships out of their way, uh, out of port to safety in, in, in Batavia or Taiwan, um, because he knows this is going to happen. But he's still got one ship left called Deriep. Um, and uh, uh, Suetsugu Hezo, who's the kind of the, the, the head of um, Hirado, is banging on his door saying, I want you to take all of your warships. And I want you to get down to Shimabara and shell the shit out of that castle. And Kukubak is like, we haven't got any war warships. Actually, the last one just left. I mean, what a coincidence. It's just gone. And, and, and uh, Suetsugu says, um, I can see a ship from here. Take that fucking ship and get down to Shimabara. And, and Kukubak goes, but it's not really in our remit to kind of fight people. We're not here. As, we're here as merchants. And they have this huge ding-dong about it. And we actually have Kukubaka's letters back to uh, Batavia explaining what happened and kind of excusing himself for doing this. So with great reluctance, uh, Kukubaka uh, takes this ship and, and sails off um, to Shimabara. He takes his sweet time doing it. It takes, I think, four days. It should take a lot, a lot less time than that. But he's like, just go as slow as we can, for God's sake. Hope it'll be over before we get there. They get there. Nope. Siege is still going on. So they start bombarding the castle. Uh, now, the trouble is, is that the, the ships are low in the water. They're not warships. They are merchant men with cannon on them. And Shimabara Castle is, uh, sorry, and um, Hara Castle is, is very high up. It's on cliffs. They really need mortars and they don't have any. So they kind of blast away for a bit. One of their shells actually goes over the castle, hits the samurai camp. And so, so the samurai are turning up on the ship and kind of saying, what are you doing? You're supposed to be shooting the Christians, not us. And the Dutch are like, well, it's very technical, very difficult because of the angles and stuff. I mean, if we were on land, it would be easier. And, and the samurai are like, fantastic. Move your, move your guns off the ship, put them on land. We can see how you do this, this gunny thing. So, so now Kukubaka is stuck moving his cannons onto the shoreline and firing them at this castle. Uh, and they, they, they maintain a constant barrage. Um, for quite some time uh, but one of their guns explodes and kills one of their sailors which is a matter of extreme embarrassment to the Japanese I mean the Japanese are already aware that they've kind of drafted these people in um, to their help um, and a number of uh, reinforcements arrive some of the really big wigs of the samurai uh, group arrive and they are scandalized to see white people helping in this uh, venture and this is shortly after one of the guns has exploded and, and killed uh, one of the sailors. So they're told, thank you very much for your assistance, but you can go home now. Sorry for the inconvenience and the dead guy and everything. Maybe leave a couple of the guns, that's fine, but you can, you can go. And the Dutch kind of slink off with their tails between their legs. Um, and so this new uh, uh, leader has arrived um, and uh, among the samurai, and uh, he's, he's very strict about these things. Uh, but, but he does say, I think it's time we, we, we brought this siege to an end. I think we, we, and we don't want to do it with foreign help. So the foreigners can piss off. And, and so, so, the, so the, the, the Dutch interlude is just this kind of little moment. Um, and they have been pilloried for this by Christian historians ever since. Uh, particularly in the 19th century, people, you know, when, when the Dutch are an easy target, uh, you have some of the historians of the Shimabara Rebellion saying, well, you know, it was nice of the Protestants to show up and, you know, show us just how much they care about other Christians. Um, said, said one nun who wrote a history of, of the Shimabara Rebellion. Um, uh, Kukubaka's argument was that he, was, he had no choice that um, he wasn't even sure the people he was shooting at were Christian. And even if they were, he was, he'd been ordered um, to, to do this and it would it had been made very clear to him that if he had not cooperated with the authorities then the dutch themselves would have become objects of uh suspicion uh, among the samurai authorities and they might have lost this whole trade deal that they had <laughs> i love this because now you're not done yet What's the stories of a ninja presence at the siege oh yeah because you know let's not forget the ninja so 
the stories of the siege um, in later years have become riddled with tales of ninja, particularly the samurai from Kumamoto, who were a bunch of absolute nutters who were just desperate to use all of their supplies of gunpowder as quickly as possible. Um, it's like if a wall blew up or something like that, everyone's like, was that Kumamoto again? Oh, for God's sake. Uh, so so, they, so they, they had sappers and they were digging underneath the castle and then they were putting massive supplies of gunpowder underneath and then blowing it up. Um, and so people say, oh, well, the Kumamoto people obviously had ninja with them. But ninja, do not get me started on ninja. Uh, that's, a, that's a possibility for an entire other history hack. But the short version is ninja were dreamt up by a couple of stuntmen in the 1950s. And the whole story of, of ninjutsu and ninja has been retconned into history um, in the last 50 years. In fact, the word ninja itself does not show up in an English-Japanese dictionary until 1974. This is and like so, these fictional machine guns at Gallipoli, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's like, like fictional, like fictional magic machine guns at Gallipoli that can yeah. jump over buildings. So, um, and and my my work on this book, um, for various technical reasons, I started this book in two thousand and seven. That was only it was only published in twenty sixteen. So, my work on this book was the first time that I was forced to confront this about the ninja because. In order to write it, I had to go back to the original sources, to the original Samurai Chronicles, uh, of, of which there are dozens. Um, and so every time the word ninja showed up in a modern history book, I went back and looked at the original source, and it wasn't there. So there would be uh, a thing that goes, oh, yeah, they sent some ninja over the hill, and they checked to see what was going on, and, and, and then they came back and reported. And they go back and look at the original chronicle, and it says, we sent some scouts over the hill. And the word ninja just isn't there. It's the whole thing has been has been kind of shoehorned in uh, by charlatans in in the in the ensuing years, um, and popular history hasn't helped. There are all kinds of stories about uh, kind of pulp fiction movies and stories and comics that just desperately try to put ninja into the story, um, and and they're just not there they're, uh, as they are as they are not there in any other uh, samurai tale. So the siege ends up coming to an end. What breaks it? What breaks it in the end with a fantastic moment of historical irony is that the most loyal lieutenant of um, Jerome betrays him on Good Friday. Ouch. I, I think, I think Zach might, might need some medical assistance. Uh, <laughs> I he, think you've he's, broken he's, him. He's laughing an awful lot. So uh, a man called Yamada Emonsaku, who is one of the, the, the leaders of the rebels, realizes that this isn't working and he has personal connections to the lords of arima who used to be prominent christians but who very publicly um, recanted their faith and he manages to shoot an arrow letter out of the castle into the camp of the lords of arima and so on under the guise of discussing parlay and possible treaty negotiations he starts to meet arima uh, in the tidal beach area whenever the tide is out and he offers to surrender. Um, and uh, he, he kind of reveals to, to Arima that there is this kind of weak spot in the castle, which he kind of shouldn't really have done. Um, and so and, and he, he offers to kind of betray them. But in fact, um, he is suspected um, by Jerome of having betrayed him. And so he's actually imprisoned in the castle and he doesn't get to kind of deliver the final message. But the samurai attack, um, anyway, in this kind of massive assault, um, and the, the siege has been going on for months now, and it may well be that the thing that defeated the rebels in the end was starvation, because we've already discussed that guzoni is a kind of emergency ration food. There are 37,000 of them. They're running very low on, on food. And, and the description of the, the final battle of Shimabara is not that of brave samurai taking a stand. It's as of starving people being massacred where they lay. Uh, and so... Uh, and that's one of the things about the, the Shimabara story um, that makes it uh, such a problematic area in history, because there are Christian writers who would write about it, but they're not sure if they're Christian. And there are military writers who would write about it as a military event, but they're not sure if it's just a massive massacre rather than an actual fight. What becomes of the ones that survive? Well, officially, no one survives. Um 
Uh, Kukubaka himself noted that there were tales of rebels on the run, but officially 37,000 people were killed and there was a massive uh, pile of, of, um, of bodies um, uh, left um, just to, to, to rot in the fields. Um, however, uh, this did not, uh, this was an incident that was suppressed in, in Japanese history. Um, the fact that the Shimabara rebellion happened was, was kind of gently uh, discreetly swept under the carpet. Uh, no one was allowed to talk about Christianity. Um, every year, uh, every new year, um, they would have uh, these Fumi air. Uh, ceremonies at various Buddhist temples around Japan and all the people would line up and it was this kind of big sort of party and they'd have to walk across the trampling image to prove they weren't Christian uh, and so we have a, we have a haiku we have a lovely little haiku uh, from the time um, from the 19th century I think and it's uh, um, at the temple beneath peonies in full bloom we trample on the face of Christ um, and it's this big sort of party for everybody because it's just a bit of fun, really. Uh, every year we have to kind of line up and walk across this increasingly worn uh, image of some foreigner. Um, but the reason that this goes on is that, is that the authorities suspect that there is still a Christian fifth column. They suspect that there is still kind of networks of Christians hidden. And every now and then uh, the, um, the Jesuits would send an undercover kind of guy into Japan to try and administer to these undercover Christians. Um, and we now know that there were, in fact, so-called kakure kurishitan, the hidden Christians. And in certain remote communities, people were, were passing on uh, Bible stories, passing on prayers by word of mouth and secretly communicating um, Christianity. Uh, and over the years, that drifted further and further and further away from, um, from what it had originally been. Um, but the, the hidden Christians actually... Uh, survive right up until the time that the Samurai era ended. Um, in 18, I want to say 1865, um, they built, uh, the, the, the foreigners built a church in Nagasaki to administer to the foreign community uh, because Christianity was still a capital offense in Japan. Um, and Father Petitjean was just closing up one night, and it, it was only about like two weeks after it opened. And there were these Japanese people waiting outside, and 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 one of them said, um, "Are you the are you the priest?" And he's like, "Yes. What do you want, Japanese person?" And and she says, "Our hearts are the same as you. Um... Where is the Virgin Maruya?" And he's like, "Fuck me! They've they've it's true. They're fucking true." And so it turns out that these communities, like scattered around uh, mainly around South Japan, um, have been. Uh, secretly kind of worshipping and uh, in, in very kind of isolated and secretive states for the, for the last 200 years. Um, and so the hidden Christians are then kind of, everyone is so excited about this. So much is what's written about the Shimabara rebellion is about, is really about the hidden Christians. And it's really the 19th century when missionaries, you know, and priests, you know, and uh, church representatives go to Japan and find these people. I'm like, oh my God, now you can return to the faith. Although it turns out that many of the hidden Christians' beliefs had, had drifted so far from what the original was that um, they, it, it was considered, uh, uh, they, they weren't prepared to go into a, a modern Christian religion because they, they didn't, they didn't recognize it. Just to give you an example of some of the drifts that there are, we have these kind of nonsense chants from the hidden Christians. So uh, and and they would they would chant like Buddhists as they go which doesn't mean anything, but if you if you kind of get forensic with with what they're saying, it's actually pater noster qui in caelis sanctificator nomen tuum, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And they've got another one which is Ame which is which is nothing. It, it, mean, it means nothing in Japanese. They, they just chanted this thing. But what they're trying to say is Ave Maria, Gratia Plena, Dominus Tecum, Benedictator. So it, it's, it's Hail Mary full of grace. And, and so we have these, these stories. They have their own Bible, um, uh, which has actually been published in English. It's called The Beginning of Heaven and Earth. Uh, and, and, it's kind of, and, and so you have the story of Jesus as told by word of mouth over 250 years, it's drifted very, very far off course. But what's fascinating about that is that for me to call it a Bible is to 
accord it with a degree of epistemological authority that it doesn't actually have, even among the hidden Christians. Um, there's a guy called Stephen Turnbull, a friend of mine, who was doing uh, his uh, research, a doctoral research among the um, the Christians, uh, the hidden Christians of Japan, um, and he he because some some of them are, are are still they call themselves hidden, but not hidden anymore, or, or are they? We don't know. But he was interviewing uh, one of them, and he said, "I really want to talk to you about the beginning of heaven and earth um, and the, uh, the the various stories that it contains." And the guy said, well, until you mentioned it, I'd never heard of it. But I went away and read a copy now. So now I'm ready to talk to you about it. And he's like, no, I'm here as an anthropologist. I want to know what you what you know, not what you've learned. Oh, God, you've ruined it. <laughs> um, so uh, it's a very, very kind of difficult area there. But I, I think you can you can probably see why the story of the Shimabara rebellion and the, the hidden Christians is such catnip to, to Christian historians. To that end, why is Jero Jerome um, Amakusa not a saint? Well, uh, there are a few uh, Japanese saints from the, the Christian century, um, uh, and there's a lovely little kind of monument to them in, in Nagasaki, and, and most of them are people who refuse to recant their faith under torture. Um, but... Uh, the thing that made them saints was their martyrdom. And the issue with Jerome Amakusa is we still can't be sure that his revolt was a Christian revolt. We don't have enough evidence uh, from him saying that he was a Christian leader who advocated Christian causes and who died uh, um, in, in, in odium fide, in, in persecution for his faith. Um, there, there is still a chance it was just a bunch of tax rebels and, and, and with that in mind that the, the church isn't prepared to rule that he was he, he meets the standards of martyrdom required um, because it's, you know, it's quite a political issue there yeah right so this story is huge in Japanese popular culture isn't it um, is there not an entire book about the Christian century in modern Japanese fiction, complete with sorcerers, time travellers and whatnot? Why is it so compelling to modern readers? Yeah, and, and the, the crucial thing there is, is modern readers, of course, uh, because um, uh, this, this wasn't discussed until the, the 20th century. And suddenly in the 20th century, you've got this massive explosion of interest in it. And, uh, and you're, you're referring to Rebecca Souter's book, uh, Holy Ghosts, which is a which is a history of modern pulp fiction accounts of, of of Christianity in Japan, which is absolutely mental. I, I never I thought I'd seen it all, uh, and these kind of Christian wizards raising the dead at Shimabara and stuff. But she's got like ninja tracking down the vital Christian artifacts which are hidden in the vaginas of seven magical maidens. All kinds of weird. Hang on, this is sorry. <laughs> Uh, Zach's awake now. Yeah, Zach, 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 Zach suddenly woke up. Suddenly was like vagina. What? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so yes, it's, uh, and it, it's a compelling story. And 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 I think there there are several reasons for this. And one of them, which we have to acknowledge, is research bias, because when so many foreigners get interested in this story, it is often because they, by being Christian, they amount to people like us. They amount to people with whom we share some kind of common cultural identity. They're, they're people in Japan who know who the Virgin Mary is, who know who Jesus is. Or, and, and so there is this search for the familiar, which can really skew people's understanding of history. As I said at the beginning, there are more Christians in Iraq than there are in Japan. And so much research about Japan's Christian century finds ourselves you know, concentrating on a belief that only accounts for one to two percent of the Japanese population today. So everybody else is Buddhist or Shinto or whatever, and Christianity is an incredibly small fragment of that. Um, however, it is exotic to the Japanese, uh, and the, the Christian century is such an amazing period for the Japanese, because it, it's, it's what we call a John Bar hinge. History could have been very different if the Christians had won at the Battle of Sekigahara, or if the, the Christian rebels had somehow you know, held off the shogun's people. Um, and so I think for the Japanese, uh, it's an incredibly exotic and also romantic story. And when it comes to um, Amakusa Shiro, to, to Jerome himself, the fact that he was recorded in the Chronicles as an incredibly beautiful boy and the possibility that he was actually a catamite to a samurai in his, in his younger days means that the whole um, uh, story of um, the Shimabara 
rebellion uh, also has this kind of uh, gay alternative angle to it. Um, so, I, I mean, for example, when, when the Japanese did uh, Jesus Christ Superstar in Japan, they, they did it in the style of the Shimabara rebellions. It's all these like kabuki people and samurai. And, and, and Jesus is this ridiculously beautiful boy um, because, you know, that's how uh, Amakusa Shiro is, is, um, is regarded. Um, so uh, in modern times, it is seen by the Japanese as this incredible road, path not taken. Uh, and, and, and the romance of the story is something that they, they really can't get enough of. So knowing that you will inevitably be back because we can't get rid of you and lord knows we don't want to matt's dropped in for the next recording and he's already like awestruck within like three and three four minutes how are you possibly going to top this um oh there's all kinds of possibilities i thought what i might offer you for the next history hack would be uh weaponized music in japan a hundred years of sing-along of fascism yes yes (laughs) Done. I said, I'm in for that. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be three of us on that one now. <laughs> yeah. We just say that, like, no, these his don't ever get let out to the uh, Bastard Brigade for participation. It's like, hey, we're bullying rank. Jonathan, it was another utterly bloody brilliant episode. Thank you. Um, we're going to stick all of your books on the History Hack bookstore. People go buy these books. You just get a flavor of frankly just how mental the all of this stuff is. Yeah. It's... <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i'm still true. recovering from that. i'm probably going to spend the whole day recovering from this one but thank you so much come back again soon and like i say we'll stick all of your stuff on the bookstore people go buy it it's brilliant jonathan clements you've been a joy as ever thank you very much when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.